Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, today we rewrite the headlines. Massive Harvard study reveals the true wealth of nations. That might be an interesting headline. What is the true wealth of nations? Isn't it gross domestic product? We're thinking through the true wealth of nations in relation to our last contemplations. At that time, we considered the famous Grant study more formally known as the Harvard Study of Adult Development. If you haven't heard about the study, it's worth listening to that other contemplation of it, maybe before this one. It's okay if you want to jump in here, but it's worth listening to the other one. It's a lot of interesting data in that study. It's an unprecedented study of adult development that began in 1938, and followed the lives of men from three undergraduate classes at Harvard. The study then added a group of young men from the poorest neighborhoods in Boston, and later the study included the spouses and children of people in the study. And the whole thing has unfolded over the course of 85 years now. A really impressive study, and there's not really anything else quite like it, some other longitudinal studies, of course. There are lots of things going on in science around the world. But this one is pretty interesting and unique in some ways. And it's received a lot of media attention over the past few months. And the previous contemplation began to consider why we need the headlines to change when it comes to our discussion of this study. The headlines miss the most profound findings and implications of the Harvard study, and we need to hear about these things now more than ever. The title that we use for this second contemplation could give us one possible alternative for a better headline. We'd still need to understand the true wealth of nations, what that is as far as a more critical reading of the study itself. Aside from rewriting some of the headlines related to the Harvard study, we could also think of the title for this contemplation as follows. How our culture might change if we took our own science and our own wisdom traditions seriously. A culture of ignorance has to keep reality at bay. And we see that to some degree in the commentary and media coverage of this Harvard study. Now, it might seem surprising, maybe harsh, to describe the dominant culture as a culture of ignorance. In part, that might seem surprising because we have such an abundance of knowledge. We clearly know a lot of things, but knowledge and wisdom are not the same. But it can feel surprising, nevertheless, to be swimming in knowledge and information and recognize that somehow the culture is still a culture of ignorance. We have currents of wisdom flowing from the ancient Greeks and the biblical traditions, and of course the Greeks were taking from Africa and eventually Asia as well. 
and the wisdom traditions of the world, in some sense, belong to all of us. We can all share in wisdom, love, and beauty. But even within the streams of the dominant culture more narrowly considered, there's lots of good wisdom there. And we even have some fairly wise people in the dominant culture today. But overall, the culture appears to be a culture of ignorance, and that kind of culture has to keep reality at bay. That's why we have a crisis of truth, in which we can't even agree on basic facts that we shouldn't have to argue about. And even though the researchers involved in the Harvard study are intelligent and caring human beings, they seem to be so, the way people have discussed the Harvard study seems to give further evidence to the nature of the dominant culture as a culture of ignorance. It kind of strengthens the diagnosis if you weren't convinced yet. Now, this famous research program, the Harvard study, has gotten significant press coverage recently in part because of the publication of another general audience book reporting its findings. Now, that's happened more than once. The last one was 10 years ago from the former director of the study, and we're just suggesting that the discussion is is not taking into account either the fullness of the science or the fullness of our wisdom traditions. And that ends up taming the findings of this study and leaving us all shortchanged when it comes to understanding and cultivating and enjoying the true wealth of nations and their people. Nations are comprised of people, after all, so we're asking in part, what is our true wealth? The new book on the Harvard study is called The Good Life, a phrase closely associated with the ancient philosophical traditions of Greece and Rome. We suggested that the authors, Robert Waldinger, who's the current director of the study, and Mark Schultz, the current associate director, didn't seem to fully acknowledge and promote the most profound finding of the study that they report on in their book. Another way of saying that is that we have an unstated finding that we urgently need to receive. We also have some excellent stated findings. And George Valent, the study's previous director, put it rather well about a decade ago when he was doing his media tour for the book that he put out 10 years ago. And this is how he summarized it. This is a quote from George Valent. The 75 years and $20 million expended on the grant study points to a straightforward five-word conclusion. Happiness is love. Full stop. And in our last contemplation, we savored that five words. He could have just said three. Happiness is love. That's the conclusion. But he says full stop. And we're going to circle back to this, but why didn't we stop? (laughs) Why is there another book? It's a lovely stated finding. But we need the unstated finding even to make more sense of that stated finding. It's why we're back again ten years later writing the same findings in different words, maybe different things being emphasized or brought up. But the unstated discovery of the Harvard study, the one we need to get into the headlines, is the most important finding we have about happiness and a meaningful, skillful, fulfilling life. And that finding is that we are relational beings through and through and that we and our world are a holistic flow of 
total interwovenness. Intellectually speaking, that might seem pleasant, even unchallenging, uncomplicated. So we might want to say, oh yes, of course, that's right. But the real lessons of a finding like this, this essential finding about ourselves and our world, they would come as a paradigm shift. And the nature of a paradigm shift means we can't make sense of all the lessons that would come from such a shift. Both our reason and our emotion can take offense at such lessons, giving rise to defensiveness and reactivity, even scorn and various forms of aggression. And I don't know how easy that even is to understand, because if we like an idea and we say we agree with it, we might not understand that we don't understand it. If it requires a paradigm shift, we might fancy that we've already made that shift, or we might fancy that, sure, it requires one, but I, I still get it, I still do understand it. And the suggestion, in part, is that it's subtle, and, and that's why we need to hear more about it, and we don't need yet another book and another book and another book telling us some of the basic things that we might already know. We need to find a way to the other side of that shift. And maybe we could try to do that by considering a few examples of the sorts of things that we might have to face, really confront, if we saw the Harvard study as support for the fundamental relationality and interwovenness of our lives and our world, if they really promoted this unstated finding, if that became our focus, how would things have to change as part of that paradigm shift? And are we ready for some of those changes? And we want to emphasize again and again, this just means taking our own science and our wisdom traditions, the wisdom traditions of the world, really seriously. Because the findings aren't new from the perspective of those wisdom traditions. And even within dominant culture science, on a larger cultural timescale, the findings are kind of new within dominant culture science, but they're over a century old, some of these basic notions, and they've been explored over the past many decades. And so we have some understanding, but we still haven't made the shift. There's a way in which our science is still kind of stuck in a Newtonian universe rather than in a, an interwoven cosmos. But let's see if we can think through. I think you'll enjoy this because to really think about these implications helps us to understand where we have to go with the world and in our own development, in our own way of being. As a first example, if we understood the fundamental interwovenness of ourselves and our world, the fundamental relationality of our being, we would realize that parents don't merely love and care for their child or their children, but they love and care for the whole world in the process of raising their children. Now, somewhere in us, we just have a sense that parents produce offspring. And it's a little bit narrow. It might not be what we think intellectually, but we haven't quite gotten our heart and our mind fully around the notion that parents produce people, and thus they produce culture and nature altogether. Parents produce the world we share. And it doesn't matter if they're human parents or not. 
That's the activity of love and care, including when it happens in the context of parenting. Now, if you didn't hear the first contemplation about the study, the study traces how our early childhood experiences shape the whole of our life, from our IQ in college to how much money we make, how happy we are, how meaningful our life seems to be, and how healthy we are all the way through to old age. And that can be a little surprising, that childhood relationships can determine our health in old age, not just our happiness, and that they can influence our income in dramatic ways. As parents plant seeds of love, diligence, generosity, and so on in their children, they create flowers and fruits of love, diligence, generosity, and so on in the future adult their child will become and also in the beings who will relate with that future adult. So as we begin to get out of looking at an individual developmental line, we see that we're looking at an ecology, we're looking at a, a web, a, 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 an ocean with waves rippling out from each being. It's hard to get the images right, but there are, the effects spread through the network, through the living, loving network of our lives. And this means we have to consider carefully how to parent truly well. How do we have a philosophy of life that empowers us to parent well, a philosophy of life that we then convey body to body to our children and thereby empowering them to live and love well? Parents can affect whether their child will relate warmly and ethically with others. And we should emphasize that warmly and ethically all the way through their lifespan. And they can affect what their children do for a living, how well they succeed at it, and their total well-being all the way into old age. And the Harvard study is following this, but it looks at it in an atomized way a little bit. It focuses on relationships between parents and children. Now, they include, of course, sibling relationships. So when they're following one child, they look at the relationship that child had with their parents and also with their siblings and then later with other people. But it still follows the path of an atomic individual who has various relationships in their lives of various quality. And we can default into reifying all of that. Reify is the Latin-derived word that means thingify. Descartes had this idea of the res cogitans and the res extensa, and those are the thinking thing and the extended thing, R-E-S, res. And that same Latin root gives us reify, which is to treat something like a thing. So, Relationships are not things, but we treat them that way in our thinking and our language. And this study subtly does that, and it might seem like that's no big deal, but it, it is a big deal. And we're starting to try to think through, well, why? Why is it? When we expand our vision to think of relationality in general, and to think of interwovenness, a dynamic interwovenness, we can see that the proper measure of a culture's parenting 
appears in the state of the world as a whole, and not just the state of being of the adult those parents brought into the world as their child. And that really puts us in a different perspective. It's one thing if your child grows up to make a lot of money and feel basically happy and be more or less healthy comparatively to others in their cohort. But what good does that do if the whole world is going to pot? It's not a very good legacy. Now this may seem inconceivable, really. Can we place that kind of burden onto parents? Well, can they avoid it? And it's not a burden so much as a vision and a sense of participation in the world. When we raise a child, or even if we don't have children, if we take care of our dog, if we have friends, if we have a garden outside, the world is here, and it relies on our activity every day of our lives. Saying we need to evaluate parenting based on the state of the world has nothing to do with blaming parents for the state of the world, but just giving us a proper vision of how a culture is doing, how our philosophies of life are really functioning, and then prompting us to respond in a collective, collaborative, creative way. We tend to think of our states of being as personal. And we have a kind of view that if we water seeds of peace, love, compassion, and sympathetic joy in ourselves, we can expect to experience those states more often for ourselves. The more often we nourish peace in ourselves and love and joy and appreciation, well, the more those states will bear fruit. But as relational beings, we cultivate our entire ecology when we cultivate our own soul. So it's not really a personal thing as if our psychic territory existed cut off from everything else, or as we'll consider in a moment, if our bank account were cut off from everything else. We sometimes think that way. It's my money and and I can do whatever I want. When we cultivate peace in ourselves, we cultivate peace in the entire ecology. And the more skillfully we cultivate that peace, the more it affects that ecology in a robust and vitalizing way. When a parent cultivates love, care, kindness, and reverence for life in their child, they constitute a world in which those things become more likely to appear. An abundance of peace, love, healing, joy, kindness, reverence, creativity. That's our true abundance. That is the true wealth of nations. That's part of it. It all goes together. Now, we just mentioned money. Let's consider it a little bit, because understanding relationality would radically reorient the meaning of money. We noted in the last contemplation that money is part of this study, in the sense that we see the researchers examining things like relative income. You have two people, they both went to Harvard. What's the difference? Why did one make 
quarter million dollars a year and the other one only made 100,000. What's going on there? And so we need to get clear about what money is rather than just tracking it in a study. And we need to ask whether or not our understanding of money fits with the findings of the study itself. As of now, and in spite of whatever projections we wish to layer over it, money arises as abstracted and alienated relationships. See, we are relational beings through and through. The study gives us evidence of that. Other branches of science and other wisdom traditions also agree. We are relational beings. This is an interwoven cosmos. But in that relational reality, money arises as abstracted and alienated relationships. And that's what we're looking at when we look at our bank account, whether it's digits on a screen or we have a credit card in our hand or a phone app or actual paper money. It's all the same. It's abstracted and alienated alienated relationships. Money is not energy. That's one of the silliest and most self-deceptive tropes of the self-help catastrophe. People love to say that. Money, it's just all, it's all energy. Money's energy. And we talk about our vibrational frequency in relationship to money, but money isn't energy, nor is money a value-neutral medium of exchange. Money could function as a medium of exchange, but not a value-free one. And to some degree, it does function as a medium, but the bigger issue here is that in the system of the dominant culture, money has become the intention of the exchange. And this we must acknowledge. It would be one thing to suggest that money could be a medium of exchange, and then we would have to look carefully at how we used it so that we could make sure money was a positive medium of exchange because it can't be value-neutral, it won't be. And in the dominant culture, to the extent that money still serves as a medium of exchange, because in a certain sense, of course, obviously it does, but to the extent that it does, it has a negative value overall, looked at from the broadest view. Otherwise, the conditions of life wouldn't be at risk. But in a certain sense, worse than that, worse than the fact that as a medium of exchange it often is negative in its impact. Worse than that, money is largely the intent of the exchange in so many cases, either in whole or in part. Because even in an ordinary situation where we want to save a dollar on our gas price, right? So then we go for the Costco membership because it's the cheapest one in town. Maybe it's 50 cents. We're trying. Money is the aim of that exchange. And of course it's the aim of the exchange and when people are raiding pension funds and when people are merging companies and so on and on and on and on, bribing congressmen and all the things that happen in the dominant culture, money is the intent of these exchanges. It's what we're trying to get or save in countless cases. And this seems to be the majority perhaps. And we should find that shocking because it indicates a profound confusion or delusion in our understanding of relationality. 
It's not that we have to have some right understanding of money. You see, the self-help catastrophe has gone crazy with money. Everyone wants to give us a better understanding of money, but that's that's completely backwards. It's, in a certain sense, deepening our ignorance because we first have to ask whether money accords with the nature of reality. Not how do we get more money, but no one asks first. Well, wait, does this accord with reality? We assume it does. And we buy somebody's storyline that it's all energy and you have to have an abundance mindset and it's a whole rationalization or series of them. It's all nonsense. We have to ask first, wait, does money accord with the nature of reality before I go seeking it? And we find that it doesn't. Just this fact shows us that there's a problem, that we would make it the intention of our activity. And we can't have a delusion at that scale because of the place that money has in the dominant culture now in the planet. We can't have a delusion at that scale without terrible consequences, and we see, we see those consequences every day. We orient our culture not toward the production of people, ecologies, sacred values, and the world we share. That is, nature and culture in non-duality. We don't orient our culture toward that, toward creating that in ever more skillful, graceful, creative, wise, loving, beautiful ways. Instead, we orient our culture toward the production of profit, power, and stuff. And profit comes first. Money sits at the top of an unholy hierarchy. And as money and things become more dominant, beings, ecologies, and relationality itself, because the three go totally together, they all suffer. We shift from being more to having more or trying to have more. The abstract and alienated nature of money in our current context appears clearly in its production, which happens deus ex machina, the god in the machine that adds zeros to create more money. That's how we make most of our money. Just a click and there's zeros. We have no concrete relationships there, no flesh and blood, no living ecology shaping or limiting this process. But don't ask the ecologies if we can have more money in, the, in circulation. No, money just gets produced ex nihilo by the fiat of the invisible hand of capitalism. We could say the invisible hand does nothing more than to push us toward more money. Another way of saying that is Adam Smith was flat out delusionally wrong. The invisible hand does not balance things. It unbalances them. And that production of money that has no connection to ecologies is a very good clue. Because you couldn't do that. You couldn't increase the production of apple pie without asking if you have enough apples in the orchard. That's not a scarcity mindset, that's a reality mindset. But that's not how we do it with money. Money is the delusional mindset. That's not an abundance mindset, that's a delusional mindset. 
and that's what money seduces us into. Fundamentally, capitalism has to do with living at a distance from our own body, our own heart, our own mind and world. Money facilitates spooky action in a mirage of distance. The distance isn't real. Now that's somewhat subtle. Maybe it's a lot subtle. And we probably need another contemplation just to really think through, many contemplations to think through money. And let's maybe take at least an example. This is a simple example, but maybe it would help us to understand this mirage of distance. We go to a grocery store. And let's say, I don't eat quinoa, but let's say that you went into the grocery store, I went into the grocery store, and I want to buy some quinoa. And in doing that, I have entered the mirage of distance. Why? Because quinoa doesn't grow outside my door. If I lived in intimacy with the ecologies of the world, then I wouldn't be able to eat something that doesn't grow right where I live. Now, we can make a lot of rationalizations here. And and of course, we might have a world where there's a reasonable level of trade, but that's not what happens. In the world that we have, this is not an ideal, some, you know, imaginary thing, but in this world, in this world, it doesn't matter if quinoa grows outside my door. If I have money, I get to have it. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are. It doesn't matter how far away it had to come. And it doesn't matter that indigenous people who live where the quinoa is now grown, it doesn't matter that those lineages, those family lines, might have been eating quinoa for millennia. Now, many of them can't eat it because the market price is too high. They no longer have enough money to eat what grows outside their door. And so they have to live on wheat or rice or things that their ancestors never ate because it's got a more affordable market price. Now, this has happened. And it happens with other things, too. There's lots of insanity in the way we grow food. There was a major study not very long ago where the researchers said, hey, we could solve so many problems if we just stopped growing food in the wrong places. And so some of that would mean that farmers who, from their perspective, have always been growing such and such a crop, really not that long back from a broader perspective, and they're just growing the wrong thing. They've got the wrong thing growing there. And so they, if we could just get them to grow something else, that would be fine. In some cases, you might have to move some human settlements. But in a lot of cases, it's just about rearranging where we're growing what and using the same land that we have, but using it more intelligently. But we're living in a mirage of distance, and the researchers basically acknowledge that they didn't think anybody would do anything like what they were suggesting, even though it could do so much good for us all. And this all reflects the mirage of distance, that we can do whatever we want because we're not really rooted to a place or the system isn't. Sometimes people are. They're not so much rooted as trapped in some cases. They're not allowed to be rooted. But the system doesn't respect that locality. 
And so if I poison the water here, I can bring in bottled water. If I poison the water somewhere else in order to get what I want, if I, I want my new electric car, and so if that ruins ecologies and the waters and so on someplace else, well, so much the worse for the beings who have to deal with it. And that's how it works. We could try to change it. Money, if we made use of it at all, should be about relationships, though. It's, it should be conscious, right there, evident, how it works. It should empower our relational dancing with each other and with the natural world, an ethical fact that would likely limit its use and scope. Because now it's totally disengaged from the ecologies we actually depend on. We don't depend on money, but we live as if we do. You're out of money, you're done for. But only within the context of the system, you're out of ecology, you're really done for, it doesn't matter how much money you have. But in this system, it's the other way around. If you've got enough money, it doesn't matter what your ecology looks like, you're okay. Until we run out of them completely, right? That's the delusion. Money should ultimately come down to relationality and the promises we make to each other and to the world the responsibilities that go with what we refer to as rights. And importantly, other than profound ecological and spiritual realities, the promises between human beings can be sincerely and respectfully renegotiated. In a culture that educates for character, we would never see that in terms of the disingenuous moralizing of debt that constitutes our current regime. Somebody can't pay, we say they're a deadbeat. We do not say, wait, you can't pay. Friend, money is a relational dance, and it's about the promises we make to each other. And you've been educated well. I know that you're a person of good character. Let's talk about the promises we've made to each other and find out how we can make this work. We don't do that. We don't respect that we are all lived by powers we pretend to understand and we can help each other let the powers of wisdom, love and beauty live themselves through us. Now this does happen in some cases if you're wealthy enough you can renegotiate a debt. If you're wealthy enough and powerful enough we can just keep it going and we can even expand your debt even though we're not getting it paid, even though we're starting to ask, well, we're not sure how you're going to pay it back, but if you're wealthy and powerful, we can keep lending. So the Harvard study could get us to rethink money, debt, and the economy in general, but it will not do so without the input of more skillful philosophical thinking and creativity. It's somehow fun and interesting to report that a person could make twice as much money if they enjoyed a warm childhood compared to a cold childhood. But what about rethinking the culture altogether once we realize the difference between those two people comes down to relational experience and not whether one worked harder than the other or earned it or should be praised for it. That's the finding that should click with us. We really should be able to say, now hold on a second, here's a person who makes twice as much money as a person who's remarkably similar. They both went to Harvard, both had an IQ of 110. 
both had access to good social connections. What's the difference? And our first thought is, well, it's got to be that one worked harder than the other. But then we find out, no. It's that one had a warm childhood, a warm childhood ecology, warm childhood relationships. And that warmth of relationality unfolds over the course of our entire life. And when we recognize that, we should be ashamed that we have a culture that says, well, you know, since you got lucky and you had a warm childhood, we're going to give you even more luck. Here is this abstract thing called money, and it will let you do whatever you want as long as you have enough of it. And that's sort of the game that we're playing. Instead, we should say, now hold on, this is a problem, this is a symptom of a disease. We can't have a culture in which people make twice as much money, this stuff called money, just because they got lucky enough to enjoy a warm childhood. We need to improve relationality, invest in relationality, and a real understanding of the interwovenness of all things, and we have to start seeing money as a part of that. It has to be in service to that. And my goodness, that thinks we, we have to figure out what that means. We don't know because it's not how we live right now. What would it mean? That's the paradigm shift. So we're just trying to, as we think through these examples, see where we have to stop and say, well, I don't know. That's the place where the paradigm shift is. It's waiting for us to start peeking into the unknown. But we have to stop first and say, well, I guess we don't know. And we could go a little further along these lines, if we understood the lessons of relationality in the Harvard study. And if we brought that insight together with other available research, we might finally reckon with the ancient spiritual truth that money cannot buy us love or happiness. And we would do something about the fact that we have created a world Because remember, parents raising children make a world, and we all make a world in our activity of life every day. And we have made a world in which poverty can buy us a lot of misery and can put tremendous strain on our practice of love. A mature culture wouldn't tolerate such a situation, especially when it accepted that success in life has more to do with love than anything we might imagine as blamable on the one we choose to view as a failure. And sadly, we have scientists now trying to say, oh, hey, money, it can buy you happiness. They, they do not see this relationality. They do not understand the meaning of money in the system that we have. It's a complete confusion. And the Harvard study makes that clear. If we look at it carefully, if we understood interwovenness, we would begin to sense that. That any indication that money can make a person happier shows us only that we have enough inequality that poverty or relative poverty buys you misery, that it makes you miserable, and that we are living disconnected from reality itself. 
spiritual and ecological reality. And we know that our culture cannot long endure like that. Now here's another example. If we received this study as a set of lessons about our interwovenness, our relationality and the interwovenness of all things, we might develop a notion of relational style and relational skill as really integral to skillful experiencing in general. Today, it's we have a narrow view about this. And some people have gotten really into it, into what's called attachment theory and attachment style. But ultimately, it's a fragmented view. It's not broad enough. And we need to cultivate a broader sense of relational awareness, relational style, and develop relational sensitivity that would lead us to understand and eventually understand our thinking, speaking, and action in the world as primarily, or we would say essentially, relational. That would make even our values relational, which in turn would lead us to ask, well, what is most important in my relationship with the cosmos? What do I want to relate with because it will constitute me? And we would take really good care of what we related with. If we spend a lot of time relating with money and how to make more of it, how to sell objects, and so on and so on, that's constituting us. And here we should note a kind of running problem, a running challenge. It's easy to fall into errors of language when we're thinking through these things. We're trying to approach the edge of a paradigm shift. And our language presents challenges there. And maybe, in fact, another change that might emerge over time if we understood our interwovenness and really engaged with it what might happen over time is maybe the Indo-European languages could begin to evolve in the direction of process and relationality as we find in languages like Blackfoot and Mohawk. Not every culture and not every language breaks the world up into atomic objects and fails to sense its interwovenness and dynamism. But we have to keep that in mind as we're talking about these things. I'm very aware that sometimes I speak in a way that still flirts with the very problem that we're trying to overcome with it. And it's in part just cognitive habits and language. Well, here's an exceptionally important example of what we would do if we understood the nature of relationality and interwovenness more fully, as illustrated in this Harvard study we would begin reimagining our cities and towns to feature far more biodiversity and biomass. Trees, birds, pollinators, grasses, waters, shrubs. We would re-envision and reorganize cities and towns so that they become 70 to 80 percent green space. That's not a very good word for it, green space, because it's like it's separate. We might want to have living buildings and so on. It's another part of the challenge of language. But the idea would would be that we would have ecologies for solitude and for social gathering that felt like natural places. 
And sheer biomass is something that we really would have to consider because imagine how much New York City weighs. All the skyscrapers, all the steel and glass and asphalt and the the taxis and the buses and the streetlights and the fire hydrants and the subways, all that mass of the city. And what percentage do we think is non-human, non-pet biomass? And we have some evidence. These things are probably tricky to calculate, but there are quite a few calculations suggesting that the human-built environment now outweighs the biomass of the planet, and that is terrifying. And we also have evidence to suggest that the weight of human beings and their livestock and pets outweighs all the rest of the beings. That's also a pretty scary thing. So we're talking about a big revolution here. Can you imagine redesigning cities and towns so that they were 70 to 80% green space? What does that world look like? And sure, we can debate a little about the details, but what if that's what it takes to have a healthy ecology, a truly healthy ecology? And this kind of revolution, this paradigm shift, extends to a lot of things. Once we understand that we are interwoven beings, we would begin to recognize that we do not mine minerals or extract fossil fuels, but that because of the nature of interwovenness, we actually mine and extract interwovenness itself. We mine and extract what we are. That's not easy to wrap our minds and hearts around. That realization calls for a revolution in how we continue human culture, which means how we continue the interwovenness of the world, the interwovenness that is the world and is our nature. I know that's a strange thing to suggest, and might have to take a double pause there. We're not mining minerals. We're mining our own interwovenness. It can't be anything else if everything is interwovenness. We are drilling into and extracting from ourselves. And we would see that if you start pulling at the threads of our own interwovenness like that, things are going to unravel we would start to get much more careful as we recognize, wait a second, everything we do is working on the interwovenness. If we take from it, we're taking from ourselves. We're pulling those threads apart. Whereas if we feed them and find different ways to do things, more skillful ways to do things, then we're enriching the interwovenness. Understanding this and eventually understanding it would lead us to see the total non-duality of what we now refer to separately as nature on the one hand and culture on the other. We currently don't practice forest thinking because we have no skillful interwovenness with forests, not zero, just as a general characteristic of the dominant culture. Would you say, hey, look at the dominant culture. Is that skillful interwovenness with forests? The answer is no. It's rather unskillful. 
It's rather abstract. It's an abstract relationship facilitated by the abstract machine we call money. And yet we very much need forest thinking, mountain thinking, river thinking, horse thinking, bee thinking, and so on. Just as we can find exceptional and even extraordinary benefits from a warm childhood compared to a childhood lacking warmth, love, and social stability, so too could we begin to cultivate the inconceivable benefits of a childhood profoundly rooted in what we now refer to as nature. We don't want to oversimplify this. People came to Turtle Island from conquest cultures and they encountered here more nature than we can functionally imagine. I don't think we have an easy time imagining the level of wildness and richness of ecology that existed here when conquest consciousness arrived en masse from Europe. And we've heard stories that you could hear the salmon rushing in the river for miles away, that when the birds were migrating, they could block out the sun. The trees here, massive, massive, massive trees here in California on the coast. Trees that were 1,500, 2,000 years old, maybe more. Giant, giant trees, dwarfing human beings. And this was everywhere. So much life. Millions of bison. Beaver. Just, it's incredible to to try to imagine it, and we really can't, I don't think. I don't think it's easy to functionally imagine, but the point is, exposure to this did not alter the consciousness of most of the people from the conquest cultures. Now, it might have done for some of them to some degree, especially for the ones fortunate enough to leave the dominant culture, whether either temporarily or on a long-term basis, and live with indigenous people, become re-indigenized. And when we think about that kind of situation, we're talking about real rootedness in nature and a non-duality of nature and culture. And we don't really have that. So we may, in our own experience, feel deeply connected with nature, but if we have been infected by conquest consciousness, we probably need a lot of humility. And we probably need to realize that most of us have a lot of work to do in order to properly re-indigenize. And it might not happen in this lifetime for, maybe for most of us, it's not clear. But we should not think that we know what it would mean to live as some of the indigenous people were living 500 years ago or the way some of the greatest saints and sages have lived, rooted in reality, rooted in wildness. We really need a lot of care and humility. And as Nietzsche said, it's really different to grow up already in something rather than to have to develop it after growing up somewhere else. You know, if you're embedded in conquest 
culture or infected with it from childhood, it's a very different experience to try to shake that off and come to some sanity than it is if you had been embedded in a very sane indigenous culture. A child who grows up embedded in nature, in a nature-culture non-duality, living with true elders who can help them learn to think with mountains, with rivers, forests, and the great earth, and the great mystery too, that child can think more skillfully and creatively than a child kept mostly away from nature. It's just a different mind. And maybe you get fooled because the one kept away from nature is able to build rocket ships. But we've then gotten confused about what the meaning of life is. Nietzsche would call that pretty nihilistic. Not that we have to appeal to him, but he's a, a good diagnostician when it comes to the malaise and the disease of the dominant culture soul. And the point here, though, is we don't want to naively equate exposure to what we refer to as nature with a capacity for skillful thinking. And the two are not so simple. We don't achieve sagehood just because we go out into the wilderness. And Buddha himself made this very clear. I think I've mentioned it before, but somebody asked him, hey, Buddha, you became enlightened out in the wilderness. That doesn't seem like that's very easy. And Buddha said, well, that's a good point. It isn't. Any fool can go into the woods, Buddha said. Now, I'm not saying that any particular person listening here who loves to be in the woods is, is a, a foolish person. But Buddha was saying, you only will get from that ecology what you can bring to it, relatively speaking. And Buddha spent a lot of time studying and a lot of time practicing. And when he went to the woods, he said he went with a mind of true peace, a mind of true love and compassion a mind of incredible stability and clarity and yet sensitivity, pliancy. It was just an exquisite mind and heart that he took into that wilderness. And so that's a big difference. And that issue comes up many times in the Buddhist tradition, this confusion about what it means to go into the wilderness or what it means to practice in a way that will lead us to transformative and healing insight. And so in general, what we want to recognize is that the non-duality of nature and culture depends on holistic education. How that non-duality unfolds and evolves depends on education. And that's true of human beings, but also non-human beings. Learning is part of evolution. Evolution is a mental process. It's a learning process. And there's a holistic education going on all the time. And as far as the human realm goes, we have mostly cut ourselves off from vast potentials. And again, this is not a, a judgment of, of anything other than the effect that conquest consciousness has on the people of the conquest cultures and also by uh, those affected. You know, if you're affected and infected by it, there's still a recovery that has to happen. It's like catching a virus. You, you might be a very healthy person otherwise, but you might still need to recover. In a certain sense, we've made most childhoods cold or loveless when it comes to connection with nature and wildness. And that depletes the wealth of all nations, especially when a nation as large as the United States lives that way. And that idea of loveless 
you might recall, I think we mentioned in the last contemplation, we definitely did, I don't think we mentioned it here, but George Valent referred to those who had the warmest childhoods as the cherished and those who had the coldest childhoods as the loveless. And that's how our relationship with nature can be, to some degree. Of course, there are lots of little little spaces of warmth. That, that we have a dog or a horse or all, all sorts of things that c- can become nice. But again, those relationships are usually not ecological and not really interwoven and an entrance into the bigger mystery that we could be entering into, however profound it might have been. I don't want to take away anything from anyone. This is just trying to get clear on what might be missing as good as we think we've got it. And just to recognize how conquest consciousness is. We cannot have conquest consciousness and full attunement with nature. Full attunement. And if we understood these things, we wouldn't merely spend more time in nature learning, observing, studying, and experiencing wonder and sacredness. Those are all wonderful things. And we'd be talking about real work with a trained mind. And that would be great. But we wouldn't just do that. We wouldn't just spend more time in nature with our trained heart and mind. But we would integrate that with a collaborative and creative effort to care for the community of life in reverence and respect. We would understand that we can't do anything properly without orienting in the direction of cultivating the whole of life onward. Now, we're talking about a scientific study, and it accords with other findings of science, but in the dominant culture, we think that science can function as an activity of gathering knowledge, but it can't. Science can only have one function in a culture that hopes to long endure. Science has to be fundamentally about cultivating the whole of life onward, supporting the whole community of life. There is no job we could do that could stand outside of that kind of intention. But right now we live as if that could be, that we could have a job like outside of the community of life. We can go to work every day, maybe at a bank, maybe at a tech company, and we could spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week there, and it might do absolutely nothing good in terms of cultivating the conditions of life. Our entire work week might have nothing to do with cultivating the conditions of life. In fact, it's usually the opposite for most of us because of the nature of the culture. Most of us, most of the time, our activities will add up to degrading the conditions of life to some degree. Now, I know that's a terrible thing to have to countenance, And that's why the Harvard study needs new headlines. The study reveals to us how crazy our current regime is. For most of us in our work life, in our lives as citizens, 
as friends, in our family life, we don't get to focus on cultivating or enjoying the true wealth of nations as our main activity of life. But how could we live well, truly well, aside from the true wealth of nations? If we want to have a real abundance mindset, we better understand what wealth is, what true wealth is, the true wealth of nations. And if we understood it, we would focus community effort on rejuvenating the wealth of nations that we've already squandered, realizing how important it, it is and how we can afford to squander it like that. You know, it's just one example. We would focus community effort on replenishing watersheds, re-regulating hydrological cycles, reducing pollution, and protecting and revering the beings who live with and take care of our waters. We all need access to clean water. And that seems like a ridiculously obvious notion until a culture has so misunderstood relationality that it poisons and misuses its own waters or the waters of others, often for the sake of the abstraction we call money. Why did you poison the river? Well, to get more money. That's why. Why'd you blow up the mountain? To get more money. It's the intention of the activity. And it shows us very clearly what money does in our cultural context. We could wish for a different meaning, but that's like wishing gravity accelerated us at seven meters per second squared. Or that just with the right intention, with the right abundance mindset, I could float at will. And that gravity just wouldn't affect me. Oh, it's just energy anyway. You know, don't worry. It's a curvature in space. No big deal. You can curve whichever way you want. It doesn't work that way. I wish money did. But we have to be honest about its meaning in this context. Just like we have to be honest about the meaning of anything given the context. Now, if we understood this interwovenness, we would engage in a lot of replenishment, the practice of replenishing ecologies. And that would, of course, include ecologies like forests, mountains, rivers, and oceans, but also our own mental and physical ecologies, re-regulating our sleep cycles and thus our dream life, reducing toxins in our minds and bodies, and in general, cultivating positivity, joy, love, compassion, generosity, warmth of heart, gratitude, cooperation, communion, ceremony, celebration, and mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, and mutual liberation. We would learn how to be together more skillfully learn skillful interwovenness, learn how to cultivate our relational skill and our ecosensual awareness, all together with our spiritual life, as our spiritual life, and not seeing work as a burden, but work as part of our sacred participation, that work 
as we call it, wouldn't be called work. It, it would be as if we were done with that word. And we would just be here to attend, to tend to reality, to cultivate the conditions of life. And we would understand this, in other words, as what we need to do to cultivate and enjoy the true wealth of nations, not as work and not as something we do for 40 hours a week that we hate so that we can get the money to do the thing that we really like and thereby participate in that craziness of money. We can think about all of this in a variety of ways. And maybe it would be helpful to go back to George Valen's suggestion Take it as a hypothesis. Hypothesize that George Valent was correct to say that the millions of dollars and countless hours of work on the Harvard study amount to one thing, one key finding. Happiness is love. Full stop. And then we'd say, well, we need to understand the nature of love in order to understand that finding. If that's the finding, then we have to ask, what's love? And as we went into that and we began to inquire, if the nature of love turns out to accord with the rest of the Harvard study findings and with findings from other branches of science as well as the wisdom traditions, then we have to conclude that the nature of love is relationality too. And we would thus arrive at the ecology of love and its inescapable corollary, the love of ecology, which extends to a love and appreciation of the real work of life, which is care, the care of and reverence for life, and the interwovenness that we are. And we're not talking about some kind of naive, woo-woo-y notion that we can dismiss as neo-pagan nonsense. We're saying that in a very scientific and careful philosophical sense, we can start with love and we'll still come back to ecology. The Harvard study verifies the non-duality of spiritual and ecological reality as it verifies the interwovenness of all things. The Harvard study shows us that love is ecological. And once we understand that, we know we cannot contain love within the so-called nuclear family unit. It doesn't make any sense. We could love our child with incredible depth, but if they get lead poisoning, our love for them won't save them from the consequences of that, if it's severe enough. That's a simplistic example. Life is much more subtle, complex, and inconceivable for us. But we do need to begin to see that our interwovenness means we have no atomic individuals and no nuclear family units. Sure, in the most relative sense, it makes sense to talk that way very, very narrowly. But when we look with care, we find children grow up in, through, and as interwoven ecologies. When we consider adult development and we ask how one person seemed happier 
or maybe earn twice as much money as someone very much like them, we need to see that as an ecological phenomenon rather than naively locating the causes inside an atomized person. Some children grow up in, through, and as ecologies of warmth that stimulate their creative intelligence and strengthen their sense of skillfulness. And some children grow up in, through, and as ecologies of relative coldness and rigidity that may harden their minds and hearts, leading to increased stuckness, self-doubt, craving, and so on. Some people grow up in ecologies with high levels of toxins like lead, uranium, teflon, rocket fuel, pesticides, and so on. And in the dominant culture, Some people grow up in ecologies with intense inequality and injustice, while others may experience less of these. For instance, Finland has ranked as the happiest nation on earth for the past six years, and they have a significantly less income inequality than nations like the UK and the US. And when I say significant, it's not like it's ten times less. The fact is, it may be somewhat surprising, that even small relative differences of income inequality can create more misery for the population as a whole. Because overall, the U.S. is far wealthier than Finland. It's not even close. The size of our GDP, there's a whole lot more money here. But Finland's happier. And it, it, it's a significant difference. I think it's something like maybe the difference between 33% and 44% or something like that, but it's still enough to make a big difference. We need to see the ecologies of childhood from as broad and deep a perspective as we can. When we do so, when we can understand how the ecologies of childhood can put us into unskillful relationship with ourselves, each other, the larger community of life, and the spiritual and ecological realities upon which we all depend and which also depend on us. The broader spiritual and ecological realities carry a significance for us we could hardly overstate. And we encounter here one of the major drawbacks of the study. Because the researchers don't seem to be aware or don't make explicit that they are verifying our relational nature, they fail to make vibrant connections to nature itself. They fail to highlight and honor the ecology of love and the love of ecology, a truly good life demands, and that is integral to the true wealth of nations. The nature of nature is the very relationality and interwovenness that comes through in the Harvard study data. The true wealth of nations, our true abundance, 
Not this nonsense about who made more money than whom. But if you look at the book, The Good Life, you find 36 instances of the word nature and not a single one of them refers to the natural world. Instead, it refers to things like human nature or the nature of social media. I'm not saying that there's absolutely zero reference to the natural world. It's that there's a functional absence of the actual concrete ecologies we depend on, the ecologies which could educate and thereby strengthen, broaden, and deepen our relational skill, the vibrancy and skillfulness of our interwovenness. And that functional absence of nature takes the danger out of the findings, taming them, and thereby taming us. And from a certain perspective, that taming might seem innocent, but it puts us and the world we share at risk so it is not so innocent. The conventional analysis, what the study even allows us to know, not what the study found out, but what it allows us to find out from the get-go, the conventional analysis perpetuates our ignorance about our relational nature and about the fact that our relational nature makes us ecological beings which makes our highest values ecological or relational too. And we're not talking about some new agey nature religion here. Again, I want to make that clear. We're noting that our highest values are necessarily ecological because of our nature. If you happen to believe that the divine created the world, then the divine made us interwoven. That's the world that the divine made. And whatever our religious or philosophical views, we find a non-duality of spiritual and ecological reality when we inquire into this place, into this life. And so whatever the author's intentions, the authors of The Good Life, it's quite easy in the present context to read their book as a feel-good story about things we can do to self-soothe in the midst of a catastrophe. And I, I know that's not their intention. The authors are not here to contribute to our delusions. I think they probably want to help us, but the book runs the risk of fragmenting our understanding of living a good life by reducing it, abstracting it, and failing to help us turn toward the kind of dangerous wisdom our world rather desperately needs us to work with. The Harvard study, like a lot of dominant culture science, thus obscures our fuller nature, including our need for ecological awareness, or we could say ecosensual awareness, or a sense of the sacred in the world, and a reverence and gratitude for life. And it obscures vitalizing relationships with nature and non-human beings. It obscures our need for creative, vitalizing, wise, loving, beautiful, sacred relationality. And the practices and ceremonies, the rituals and rites that would make us more skillful and graceful 
as the relational beings we already are. By perpetuating our ignorance and by obscuring truths we very much need to hear, the study risks sending us further down the wrong path, a path we already find nearly impossible to leave, even as we see its terrible consequences. We can't enjoy a truly good life. We can't enjoy the real wealth of nations when we have a limited vision of what we are, what we're capable of, and what the world demands of us. Reality has its own obligations which we cannot escape, and you can think of that as Sophia's expectations, the expectations of the divine, the expectations of the great mystery, they are there. We are not atomized or cut off from this world, but interwoven. If we had more skillful and realistic practices of interwovenness or relationality, it would alter our entire experience of life. Skillful and realistic here indicates an array of things, including, most basically, an acknowledgement of spiritual and ecological realities. It's not realistic or skillful to think we can degrade the very ecologies we depend on or to think we can live functionally cut off from them. But skillful and realistic unfolds as creative, collaborative, wise, loving, beautiful, graceful, inspired, and wild. It has to encompass everything that goes with a proper recognition of the relational nature of reality, that we are relational beings all the way to the core, and that everything thus arises in complete flowing interwovenness. These things are easy to say, not easy to live. To say we're relational all the way to the core, it it sounds easy, but it means we're not going to find any object in there when we look. If it's relationality all the way down, then however hard you look at yourself, you're not really going to find yourself, but you'll find everything else. Sun, moon, stars, mountains, rivers, great earth. Now, part of the reason we miss the sorts of vital insights that we've been trying to hint at about how the economy would change, how cities would change, how our jobs might change, all the things that might change, why is it that it's not in the study? Why are we talking about all the unstated findings? Why aren't they stated? Well, in part it has to do with a lack of collaboration. Uh, uh, We fail to have an ecological sense of how to do science itself. And so we don't have proper collaboration between scientists, artists, and philosophers. A study on adult development should probably never, never be conducted exclusively by people trained in what we call the sciences in the dominant culture. Now that might come as a big shock in the dominant culture to suggest such a thing. But as we noted, Wallinger and Schultz admit that the wisdom traditions have a very, very long head start over the scientists when it comes to thinking about the good life and what's a good trajectory of development. And philosophers reading reports about the study can probably recognize what that massive head start means and why we need more collaboration between science and philosophy, and not exclusively the philosophy of the professors in the university, 
I, we wouldn't exclude them, but even more so the philosophy of the philosophers, the ones who taught us the practices and the deeper potentials of a life of wisdom, love, and beauty. And creatives have a role to play here too, because sensitive artists can help us vision our way forward as well as helping us arrive at a proper vision of where we are. We find expressions of the good life and the various pathways to arriving at it in mythopoetic terms or mythopoetic garb or however you might want to say it. And we find that that mythopoetic vibe across all the traditions. The mythopoetic vision may come from the mystics of those traditions, people who are something like a cross between an artist and a philosopher. Or it may come from people we would be more inclined to refer to as artists who are translating the teachings as well as translating their engagement with and practice of those teachings, even if their realization might lag a bit behind the more advanced mystics. So there's a difference between Rumi and Milarepa and maybe, you know, somebody like Robert Frost, and then even somebody like Gary Snyder, who's obviously incredible, but probably wouldn't consider himself quite to be Milarepa. So there's a little bit of a of a diff- difference there, but we can still find value. It's not like Robert Frost has got nothing to tell us. Our arts would change, of course, because this collaboration would go in all directions. It's not just that the scientists need help, but the artists need the collaboration with the philosophers and the scientists too. And the suggestion here comes with the utmost respect for the intelligence and expertise of these and other researchers right now that we're we're talking about Waldinger and Schultz in particular, and we're not picking on them or any other researcher or any artist. But I know it seems startling in the dominant culture to suggest that we should not leave scientific research to the scientists alone. I know that seems shocking, but it doesn't make sense to leave it to them alone. It's not a holistic and relational vision. It's not ecological. It goes against the very findings of the Harvard study and many other studies in other domains that are affirming the same basic view of us as relational and the view of reality as relational and interwoven. And so, If we reject that, we are limiting and creating monocultures and creating problems. And so we're speaking from a place of respect for the findings, which recommend that we cultivate vitalizing ecologies of mind, a vitalizing, resilient ecology of mind tends to exhibit diversity. We need the diversity of perspectives that come from what we now refer to as the isolated disciplines of science, for instance. And that's just a huge collection of silos with nobody really talking to each other necessarily. It's not that it doesn't happen at all, 
but there, you have a whole bunch of drill holes and everybody way deep down in those drill holes and they don't know what the person 10 feet away from them is doing. Can barely communicate with each other. And then you have philosophy. Again, a whole bunch of drill, drill holes. You would be surprised. And then you have the humanities in general and then you have the arts. A whole bunch of different drill holes. And that creates fragile ecologies with little cross-pollination. And if only we had a different kind of ecology, this Harvard study could have looked very different indeed. The need for a diverse ecology of mind in the sciences and elsewhere, right? This is all goes, the philosophers should talk more to the artists and the scientists. The artists should be in dialogue with the philosophers and the scientists and the humanities and so on. And this need for diversity, a diverse ecology of mind, should remind us of the common ground shared by the wisdom traditions of both indigenous and conquest cultures. And we might thereby begin to realize that indigenous people should also participate in scientific research, along with the philosophers and the artists and people from the local community. In Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmer writes about some of the differences between an indigenous approach to science and the approach of dominant culture science. And she would know those differences fairly well, since she's an indigenous woman who has a Ph.D. in plant ecology from the dominant culture educational system. Her book is an excellent one for opening up our vision of the ecology of mind. It's not a complete statement, but it really can expand the mind, and it's a beautiful read. Among other experiential insights, she shares the following, and I'll read you a passage and let you know when we get to the end of it. And this is what she's finished her PhD, and now she's got a job teaching. She writes, I remember feeling as a new faculty member as if I finally understood plants. I, too, began to teach the mechanics of botany, emulating the approach that I had been taught. It reminds me of a story told by my friend Holly Youngbear Tibbetts. A plant scientist, armed with his notebook and equipment, is exploring the rainforest for new botanical discoveries, and he has hired an indigenous guide to lead him. Knowing the scientist's interests, the young guide takes care to point out the interesting species. The botanist looks at him appraisingly, surprised by his capacity. Well, well, young man, you certainly know the names of a lot of these plants. The guide nods and replies with downcast eyes. Yes, I have learned the names of all the bushes, but I have yet to learn their songs. I was teaching the names and ignoring the songs. So writes Robin Wall Kimmer. We might suggest the Harvard study ignores the songs the love songs of our being, the love songs of the world we share. 
In this vein, we need a little fierce compassion with ourselves. Think about the findings that got reported. Waldinger and Schultz wrote, quote, Relationships are important. And George Valent said, Happiness is love. Now, how in the world are those scientific findings in the 21st century? What kind of culture do we live in that a massive study like this confirms such things, things we should already understand and even wonderstand if we only practiced what our own wisdom traditions teach us and have taught us for millennia? It's extraordinary. This is what we get. Relationships are important. Happiness is love. You've got to be kidding. Now, in the spirit of both compassion and discernment, also seems important to keep in mind that the study authors are effectively academics, not sages. All due respect if they are sages, and no scorn at all if they aren't. I don't expect them to be. And it is true that Waldinger is a psychiatrist and a Buddhist practitioner. I think even maybe he teaches some Buddhist philosophy. So perhaps he has more wisdom than he has emphasized in the discussions around this Harvard study. It could be that both of them are very wise. And maybe even this is their wise perspective, to emphasize that relationships are important, in which case we disagree. And that's what this contemplation is about. But in any case, those two specific academics aside, Waldinger and Schultz accepted, we just have to recognize that we have a lot of evidence that academics in general have no better functional understanding of and skill at relationality than anyone else. They're just fallible human beings, not sages. Academics suffer from overwork, from high levels of stress, from a lack of true mental health in many cases, from strain in their personal and professional relationships, and from a variety of biases, some of which come from the paradigms of the dominant culture science that we've talked about, some of which come from the pressures of needing to publish, needing to attract and retain funding, needing to guard theoretical territory, needing to obtain tenure, and so on. I mean, sometimes studies continue just because they're getting funded and they need to continue. That's a funny notion, not they need to continue because we're finding out something that will further the conditions of life. Diversity in our ecologies of mind can help with all of this, most especially if we include the wisdom traditions in that ecology. We need the wisdom traditions, including indigenous traditions, to help make the promise of the Harvard study a reality. Not just the promise of the findings as re reported, but those too. We cannot overstate the importance of keeping in mind that even the reported findings really require the wisdom traditions to make them optimally accessible for us. And then we need the wisdom traditions to even go beyond to the implicit treasure that's under the surface of these findings. And we can ask questions, basic questions. How do we love our children skillfully in such a way that they would carry with them 
the blessings of the cherished. That's Valen's word for the ones who had the most warmth in their childhood. How do we make all children cherished? How do we create those ecological conditions, ecologies of being cherished, ecologies of warmth, love, peace? How do we practice our lives in such a way that even if right now we must count ourselves among the loveless, we could nevertheless still find true peace, happiness, and success in our lives considered in the most holistic way. And we have to keep in mind, too, that many of the findings can make us feel warm and fuzzy, but what matters more, what matters most, is everything left mostly at the margins and even things left completely out. That's really what we want to focus on. The Harvard study, in a certain sense, tells us that some people trapped in the matrix experience more suffering than others, and that even within the matrix, a sense of relative happiness and contentment remains possible. The study seems to fail utterly to tell us that we could and perhaps should exit the matrix altogether, thereby realizing a level of meaningfulness, fulfillment, and joy, a level of wisdom, love, and beauty that can only arise when we achieve this exit out of delusion. Now that would make for a pretty good headline. Massive Harvard study says, get out of the matrix and explains how. Unfortunately, the study we have in the book so far, it, it doesn't do either one of those. We need headlines that ring out the good news, the gospel of love. Perhaps it should go like this. Massive Harvard study reveals the true wealth of nations, our interwovenness. That's the one that gives us the title of this contemplation. It's not bad. I'm looking for anything here that could get us close. Maybe we could try this one. World peace, true happiness, and a meaningful life are possible, study finds. Just don't look for it in the system we have, which is still headed for catastrophe. That's an awfully long headline, certainly more than 140 characters, but maybe we could make an exception so that we could have the headline properly brimming with the honesty and promise that we need. Honesty and promise. We know the true wealth of nations. And each of us can find not only our own inner peace, but world peace. Not only our personal happiness, but happiness for all beings. Not only the meaning of your life or my life, but the meaningfulness of life itself. It's all available. And we have a real blueprint. Here's how you can do it. That would be the story we need to hear about. And then we'd need all the clarifications that we had above, perhaps beginning with this key issue. If happiness is love, well, we better know that love is a trainable skill, one which the wisdom traditions know how to train. 
And there's another example of something we do not want to leave to the scientists alone. If the scientists start working on an evidence-based program for learning how to love, then we might have to add mic-love to our mic-mindfulness. Because the way you get mic-mindfulness is you have scientists try to develop an evidence-based mindfulness training program. And we don't want to make that mistake. We need the wisdom traditions here. Those traditions know that love is a trainable skill, and they know it's crucial for our individual, cultural, and planetary well-being and flourishing. Again, it's not a new finding. Love is basic to what we are as relational ecological beings. So we have both a natural capacity for skillful relationality and the ability to learn ever more inspired realizations of that natural capacity. Leading with love matters. It's an ideal place to begin if we want to cultivate and receive the true wealth of nations. We should enjoy the true wealth of nations and and cultivate it. And this is the reason why we have the word philosophy in the dominant culture. We have spoken about that before. Philosophia is love wisdom, following the path of love to find the meaning of our life and to realize true wisdom, to become real elders who can then help the next generation of children feel cherished and become successful, truly successful, from the standpoint of wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, in our next contemplation, we'll reflect a little further on love as it relates to this study, and a little bit on luck, too, because that's a challenging thing to have to deal with. So luck and love is what we'll talk about next time. For now, we've come to a good place to rest and integrate a little. It's like our little psychedelic journey here. We were letting the nature of mind manifest, psychedelic, and that nature of mind is interwovenness. So relax, integrate that a little. Let it germinate and start to grow roots. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or stories to share about the true wealth of nations, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.